Welcome to The Undercover Elephant, a podcast about scaling and optimizing your PHP applications produced by Tideways. Each week, Benjamin Eberlei and Matthew Setter sit down with an expert from the PHP community to discuss a specific aspect of highly performant PHP applications. Whether you're a lone developer or part of a larger team, if you want to develop fast and reliable PHP applications, then this, my friend, is the podcast for you. Alrighty, in this episode, Benjamin and I talk with Nils Adman about integrating with third-party APIs. We also talk about handling retries and timeouts, writing tests, incremental backoffs, rolling rate windows, vendor horror stories, plus loads, loads more. As always, you can find an article about the topic of the podcast on tideways.com forward slash podcast forward slash five, as well as in the show notes. Let's get going. Hey, Niels, where are you calling in from today? Uh, hey, Benjamin, I'm calling in from my apartment in Berlin in Germany. You're the author of um, Compose and Packages together with Jordi and um, started this project, which greatly helped the PHP ecosystem go beyond peer and sort of have a much, much better packaging system, open source based packages to use for everyone in their applications. And um, the packages site that hosts open source packages and uh, you both founded the company together, Private Packages, that uh, allows you to use Composer and um, Private Packages in companies. And the resulting application is something we want to talk about uh, today. Uh, a few of the features, uh, you are communicating a lot with third-party APIs. So that is a topic I'm looking forward to speak uh, to you about. Um, is there something we forgot? Uh, do you want to, to add something, what, what you're working on? I think that's a pretty exhaustive list these days since I've started working on private packages uh, full-time a couple of years ago now. Uh, most of my day is spent working on either Composer or Packages. All right, well, I'm going to start from Tom. We'll see where this goes. So you mentioned a few times in public and private how communication with third-party APIs requires a lot of work for private packages. Could you give an overview about third-party APIs that you use and some common problems that you experience as well? So we use a large number of different APIs and uh, a lot of our application is really just talking to various APIs. It kind of goes so far that sometimes we joke that our application is really just kind of a, a scheduler of background jobs uh, and an error handler for other people's uh, APIs. Uh, like that's the amount of code we kind of write for that kind of stuff that uh, our own like logic is uh, pretty small compared to all the handling of various APIs. So the, the APIs we do actually use with private packages because we integrate with all the different uh, version control uh, systems like the code hosting platforms for them. There's obviously things like GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab. I think that's a, a large majority of uh, our requests. It gets a little more tricky because we also support some of their on-premises versions, so things like uh, Bitbucket Server or what used to be called, uh, I think, Lesson Stash, which still uses uh, authentication with OAuth 1, for example, like a little more, you know, like GitLab, self-hosted instances, GitHub Enterprise. But then also, I guess in a sense, you could say uh, just any Git, Mercurial, subversion server is really kind of an API of its own. Then the other thing we do is we uh, mirror open source packages uh, that people use. So, of course, we talk to our own packages.org, uh, also through an API. But then people run their own composer repositories. Um, some of the bigger projects like uh, repo.magento.com is a big one. 
um, or they run their small internal status repository somewhere or other various self-built ones that people purchase packages from. So we have all of these external sources for packages. But then also for other internal users, we work with APIs. Uh, for payments, we work with uh, Recurly, with Stripe. Uh, we have to integrate with uh, this kind of strange, unique uh uh, funny uh, German uh, API for validating VAT IDs for tax purposes, uh, or there's a European one as well called VIES, like more like these small little utility APIs you have to work with. Uh, we use uh, S3 through an API to store all the files that people download from us. We use Intercom uh, for support, uh, and they too have an API that we integrate with, or even something as simple as uh, MailChimp's API uh, to uh, provide a user interface to sign up for release notifications. and. Even more extreme, uh, we kind of use an internal API to talk to different parts of our application. So even that, you know, is talking to an API to a degree. So with all of those APIs and trying to sort of like bind them all together, what are some sort of common problems that you experience or have experienced? And what were some of the ways that you got around that or maybe rules of thumb that you approach dealing with API problems? Um, so I think uh, the the big picture here is really that you want to uh, make it understandable for your users what your application is doing. And if part of your application is interacting with a third-party application, that becomes somewhat difficult due to either unpredictable results um, through kind of errors on the other side that you don't have any control over, through uh, problems with the, the interaction with the thir- third party. So... I think a a lot of building an application that works with APIs is providing actionable feedback to a user, telling them that the reason that the particular thing they were trying to do failed um, is because we ran into a rate limit with the service that they're using. And that in order to fix that, they can wait for 25 minutes because then the rate limit resets or um, they could uh, contact their particular provider to ask them to maybe increase the limit. Um, If all you ever see is uh, unexpected error as a user uh, and your whole application is just working with APIs and all of the errors are unexpected errors, it just becomes really frustrating as a user and very difficult to work with. Okay, maybe sort of diving a bit on, on that one. Is there any particular horror stories or any particular APIs that are just really problematic to deal with? So I think I haven't seen an API that doesn't have its own set of problems. There's certainly some that are worse than others. I think uh, it all starts with how well they are documented and in particular, how well uh, do they document these types of non-expected states, right? So any API will at some point throw errors. And uh, the question is a bit, do you know what they're going to be? Do they allow you to deal with that? Because if you want to present your users with respective error messages, you have to figure out what those are. So the the most common known story about this, I think, is usually these APIs that return a 200 OK HTTP status code on a rested uh, API. Uh, and then in the body, it has something like error and the message is the following thing. But honestly, that one I think is not even that bad yet because uh, at least you can kind of figure out what's going on. Uh, what's a lot worse to me is if you know things go wrong in ways that you really don't expect to have to deal with. So I think Bitbucket is one of our favorites for uh, just lots of problems. I think it got a little better this year when they turned off a lot of the version 1 API. 
So for example, they sometimes run into internal timeouts between their different services. And the result of this uh, on the outside is just a 500 error uh, with an HTML body on a JSON API. So a kind of you know, you have to figure out, okay, what, what went wrong here? Was this like our fault? What exactly happened there? And uh, you kind of have to custom craft something that means that for certain endpoints on their API, it is quite likely that they time out when you set lar send large data sets. So when it returns a 500 error, this probably means that it's actually just a timeout and we can just try this again a little later when maybe their service isn't as busy. Um, so I think the, the biggest problems are usually when... Uh, it's not obvious what the API is actually doing uh, when they don't make it clear to you what kind of error it ran into. Okay. Hmm. Well, in there you sort of mentioned rate limits for, when you said, what is it? You might have to wait 25 minutes and then the user might then have to uh, increase their account. How do you sort of internally work with rate limits? Like, is there some sort of structure or approach that you take? Um, so I think I could maybe walk you through just how we generally handle requests. So we kind of have a pretty standardized process at this point where we try a request uh, and then we have a generic response handler that depending a bit on the particular API's details, reads results like a rate limit. So hopefully we're usually uh, API's report uh, information like you're out of requests or you have to wait for this in that amount of time in a header in the response that you get back uh, as part of the error message. And then we can reschedule this job. An important part for that is uh, if you do want to work with external APIs, you kind of always have to be able to retry something later, which essentially means that you want to use some kind of queuing system, some kind of background worker to interact with the APIs. Because as soon as you start doing this directly in a web request that one of your users is using and you have to retry a request, things get slow and the page for them doesn't load and eventually times out. Um, so wherever possible, we always immediately stick whatever the user requested into some kind of queue, uh, present them with a page that in some way uh, lets them know that we're working on it, and then eventually returns a response to them. So particularly rate limits, there are, I guess, two main approaches to this. One of them is a particular limit for a fixed time frame. So that's where you can say, hey, the you know, the limit is per hour. So on the full hour, it resets. So right now there are 25 minutes left. And the alternative is kind of a rolling window, which in some sense has the convenience of you can probably do requests again very soon because some of the requests you did nearly an hour ago drop off. It has the inconvenience of if you continually keep doing that, making a couple of requests and then running into the rate limit again, uh, that it becomes very difficult to predict when something is going to fully work again. Like if you, uh, like we have some of our jobs that really trigger thousands of API requests. Uh, so something we do is called uh, synchronization of uh, organizations. So to do that, we need to walk through, let's let's stick with the Bitbucket example because they use a rolling window as opposed to, let's say, GitHub with a fixed time frame. They, uh, if you want to synchronize with a Bitbucket team, uh, that means we want to fetch all the different users that there are, uh, what permissions they have on all the repositories, all the repositories that are on this Bitbucket team. So the combination of all of these different API requests is a large number. And especially if this is for a very large organization. And so if you run into a rate limit halfway through this process, 
and you kind of very classically just have like a try catch around the whole thing and then like it crashes and you have to start over question is about when do you restart because if it's a rolling window you don't really know at which point you're going to have that many requests available again so in those particular cases we implement uh, something called incremental backoff uh, where uh, you basically reschedule this job for say a minute from now, it fails again, then you rescale it, uh, reschedule it for two minutes from then. And if that fails again for four minutes from then, so we kind of keep increasing the delay between the retries um, to give it more of a chance to recover. I worked in, a, in a, a place ages ago and you may have already answered this, so let me know if you have. And it was just integrating on a, on a much simpler scale against an API, it was a betting company or integrating against betting APIs. And periodically, the code that I wrote would fail, but nothing had changed in it. And then I would sort of contact them to say, okay, have you changed anything in your, in your API? Because your docs haven't changed. And they would sort of swear blind that nope, nothing at all had changed, but it had. And the test revealed that. I was wondering if maybe we can segue off of something like that. Maybe there's some experience you had or you could use in writing that. I don't think we've had any like unexpected changes, but uh, we definitely, I mean, I think one thing we could maybe talk about is just change in general with API use, because that's something that keeps us busy all the time. It's just every time they announce like, oh, we're shutting down this endpoint instead there's this new endpoint. If you work with like 30 different APIs, like that basically is a full-time job just to, you know, keeping that updated. <laughs> like, so, okay. So if you work with a lot of endpoints and one's phased out and a new one's brought in, and you're dealing with so many endpoints, how would you, one, how do you do that? And then two, how would you do that so it just doesn't consume all of your waking time? So it's definitely tricky. It does consume a lot of our time to uh, stay up to date with the changes in various APIs. I think fortunately, most of the ones that we do use, uh, for one thing, give you quite a bit of time to upgrade and they do document this pretty well. That That is a really important thing. If you work with APIs that don't document their changes very well so that it's difficult for you to predict at which point something changes, I think that would be pretty catastrophic. However, even then, yeah, switching from one thing to another is kind of difficult. And, and in some cases, I feel like not enough thought is given to this. So I mentioned earlier how Bitbucket decided to shut down their version one API. And it turns out that something that they supported in their version one is actually not implemented in version two yet. And it took us a while to convince them that this was big enough of a problem. We kind of eventually had to reach out to all of our customers who use Bitbucket to contact Atlassian to ask them to please not shut this down so that they could use, use keep using our service uh, until they finally realized that this indeed was something that users still used, uh, which I guess also the thing you should do if you're offering an API to third parties is keep track of usage of your API and maybe uh, look at that before you decide that you want to shut something down. But generally speaking, uh, it's always manual work. Like you, you will always have to end up looking at the, the old version, the new version, seeing how you can um, switch over from using one to the other. And it's just a, an incremental process you don't really get to uh, avoid. And it's just uh, a little frustrating at times because it's pretty much out of your control. So um, do you write uh, tests for your code that's uh, calling this API? Um Are you, are you mocking the APIs? Are you using integration tests actually to, to run against some staging API? Or how do you test, test um, this kind of stuff? So that certainly depends a bit on which uh, of these APIs we're talking about. I think generally we try to at least do uh, some integration tests. So something we do because 
working with an external API and running automated tests can also be tricky at times because uh, they don't all give you some kind of staging environment and changes that you may do or potentially, you know, breaking something on whatever you're testing with. So that's particularly true for uh, payment related things where obviously you can't really test this easily with live data without risking uh, lots of problems. But uh, at least for uh, other things like all this integration with code services, uh, we uh, run uh, tests on our staging environment automatically every time that we deploy that actually work with the live github.com or gitlab.com um, to see if all of this interaction actually works with the current versions of their APIs. And then additionally, we do have unit tests uh, for some of these things where sometimes we mock the external API. And this takes different forms, I suppose. Sometimes we actually just have a, a set of sample responses we retrieved at some point. We store them as files as part of our test fixtures so that the, the respective HTTP client can return these. Sometimes uh, we kind of go a little level higher where we just have uh, a small layer around an API and we just kind of mock that thing and not the underlying part. Um, so I guess it's usually a question of figuring out the the trade-off between how much time do you invest into uh, building a fake version of the API versus uh, you know how much do you actually get out of that if the real API ends up not working as your tests do and then things break anyways. So it varies a bit between really trying to test every little part of it um, and just doing integration tests on the staging environment in the end and hoping that if it works with the full thing there, that's good enough. With working with so many APIs, I guess you'd have to do like sort of monitoring of those, sort of stay abreast of where they are. Like, what kind of tooling do you use to to do monitoring of APIs that you integrate with? Uh, that's true. So, as part of this process that I mentioned earlier, for how we just generally handle uh, external requests, we also monitor what requests we make, how many of them we make, how long they take to respond, and we collect all of this with uh, StatsD. And at the moment, uh, it ends up in Datadog, one of these services, uh, for collecting those metrics. And at the same time, uh, we actually use Tideways, uh, uh, Benjamin's tool, to uh, look at. Uh, things that happen in our web requests. Uh, so that's particularly the the APIs that we actually talk to in web requests, which I was saying earlier is always very problematic. It's very important to keep, uh, keep track of that. Um, and then we end up with uh, statistics that generally I just kind of let away. I think mostly the statistics aren't that interesting because sure, like response times go up and down a bit, but um, it gives us the ability to add alerting. So if we see that for one particular API, most of the requests start failing, it might be worth looking into uh, why that is, even if it's the kind of failure where we think it's, you know, it's just a timeout where we're trying this job later anyways. Uh, but if suddenly all of your requests to a particular API timeout, that's probably a bigger problem. So you can set up alerting uh, based on the number of requests that actually timeout. And if that starts looking uh, not as usual, you can look into what's going on. And sometimes the problem is actually a networking issue on our side connecting to the external API. But most of the time, uh, you just realize that that external service is currently having an outage. And I think our alerting on this with the amount of uh, requests to make uh, works so well that we often find out about these problems before the respective external service finds out about them. So I think I often get an alert that 
one of these systems is down and I go to their status page, nothing's there yet. I check again 10 minutes later and then they're like, oh, we're investigating an issue. <laughs> so it's pretty funny that uh, by making enough of these requests and just tracking those properly, you actually get a very good idea for the, the health of those external services. So what are some of the, most, like, the strangest, oddest, weirdest things that you've seen with APIs? So I think uh, my all-time favorite API in that sense uh, is the a combination or like the VAT databases uh, and the APIs you use to access them. Uh, so there are two particular ones that we have to work with. The one that's a little more commonly known is called VIES and is provided by the European Union. Um, and then there's actually a specific German one that German companies are required to use called EVATR, I think, uh, which does a very similar thing, but uh, it has a couple extra checks. So that's why they require German companies to use that service. And it particularly has uh, a flag called Drucken, uh, so the German word for print. And if you set this to true, the responses to your API requests uh, are shipped by mail. And so the, the, I think the, the idea behind this is that you then have like the, the physical evidence that you've verified these ideas. You know, working uh, on the internet, usually this just seems like a really funny thing, uh, especially if you do this by accident. So I think a, a friend of mine actually mentioned to me that they were testing their integration with the service and he by accident set this flag to true. So a week later, all the mail started to arrive. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, you don't. I don't think you actually pay for this, so I think it's just a, a provided to you. But it's still like a silly waste of uh, paper. Yeah, and then the other aspect of both of these APIs, because they all access these different databases that each individual European country maintains, uh, is they have uh, office hours, opening hours. Uh, so depending on uh, whether the ID number you're trying to verify is coming from a particular country, this may not be possible on the weekend or between the hours of two and four a.m. Or uh, every third Friday uh, between seven and nine a.m. And there's like this list of all the countries, and some of them are really mostly available on Sundays, except when it's a public holiday the following Monday. You know, the, the rules of this is really bizarre, and this also presents new challenges when you're actually integrating something with this API because uh, you have to expect that it's the office hours. And if you just retry five minutes later, this is not going to help. So depending on the country, uh, you will actually have to reschedule a job that failed until, like, let's say Monday after the weekend uh, so that you can then retry verifying this particular ID number. All right. So of all the countries in the EU, who has the most amount of holidays or public holidays or time offs? So I'm not sure what like the total amount of time is, but I'll just read out like some of the oddest ones to me. So Malta, for example, is unavailable every Tuesday between 7 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. and every third Monday of the month between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. Or Romania is unavailable almost every weekend from Saturday 9.50 p.m. to Sunday 9.50 p.m. The almost is really what uh, I enjoy about that one. But even a country like Germany is unavailable daily 11 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. So that may actually add up to a lot more time than the other ones. Yeah, I had a quick thought. I think it would. All right. Well, as we're about uh, around about the half hour mark, uh, this is where I'm going to hand over to you. If there's anything that you would like to give a plug of, a feature, whether it's work directly or something off the side like book or conference talk, whatever it would be, over to you. 
so I think really I would just recommend uh, the service we've been talking about this whole time. Uh, so if you work with PHP, take a look at private packages on packages.com and uh, take a look at this might not help you working with uh, GitHub, and Bitbucket, GitLab with your private packages because uh, we do take care of all these various problems for you to make it as easy as possible. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll have a link to everything that we covered today in the show notes. And thank you very much for coming on to have a chat to us today. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Niels. And thanks for tuning in. The Undercover Elephant is produced by Tideways, a PHP monitoring, profiling, and exception tracking software company. If you want to know more about anything that you heard during the episode, about a wonderful guest, or about Benjamin and myself, check out the show notes in your favorite podcast player. Alternatively, go to undercover-elephant.com. That's undercover-elephant.com. You'll find a link to each episode, which contains show notes for that episode. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, or if you know someone who is very knowledgeable in writing highly performant and scalable PHP applications, then email us at podcast at tideways.com. That's podcast at tideways.com. <laughs>